Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and I am the show's host. We talk on the show about how complicated healthcare can be. It's like this big 30,000-piece puzzle. Each one of our guests comes in with their level of expertise that they get to share with our audience and listeners. And today, I am very excited to share with you our guest, Becky Payne. Can you please take a moment to introduce yourself, Becky? Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me. I'm Becky Payne. I'm the president and CEO of of the Ripple Foundation. Okay, now that is a big deal. You have a long history. Can we talk about how you got there? I guess let's start with your journey. Yeah, my journey, I'll actually start with my upbringing. I was raised by public servants who devoted their lives and careers to their community. And so I got to witness firsthand the power of people coming together and affecting change and connecting. And that sort of launched me into interest in what I came to know as public health. I won't claim to have known what public health was at the time. And I have spent most of my career in state and then 20 years in federal public health at the Centers for Disease Control. I joined Ripple a year and a half ago as an executive vice president. And when our longtime leader retired, I was asked and graciously accepted the the opportunity to take the helm and lead this amazing organization. But I come to this from a career and a deep-seated belief in the hope and the vision of what Ripple is trying to accomplish and create a future where everyone can thrive. So what is Ripple's mission? Ripple's mission is... Very simply, we believe in what we refer to as our North Star, creating a world where all people can thrive in all places with no exceptions. Our founding mission, we're actually celebrating 70 years this year. Our founding mission laid out a vision of a future where we were addressing some specific healthcare issues, those that were really prescient at the time, cancer, diabetes, focusing on the elderly and women and securing the future of our nation's hospitals. But our founders also really understood that the pressing issues of the day evolve over time, the solution sets that we can bring evolve over time and created space for us to do just that. And so we have, knowing what we've learned in 70 years, our observations of the healthcare system and the broader set of structures at play, either promoting or detracting from people's ability to have health and well-being really drive us to where we are now, which is where we have the freedom 
to focus on a broader view of equitable health and well-being. Well, okay. So if it's been around for 70 years, are you mainly U.S.-based or working all over the world? We are mainly U.S.-based. We do have some opportunities where we work in partnership with folks globally, but our focus is here in the U.S. We are a national foundation. I should say we are not a grant-making foundation. That can get a little confusing, but we really focus on deploying our resources, which we're so fortunate to have, to support our work in exploring action learning cycles, understanding how we support folks in regions and communities in hospital systems who are trying to really get upstream and address those factors that some refer to as social determinants of health. We have a framework which we created called the Vital Conditions for Health and Well-Being that really creates the space to bring all of the players in a community, all the sectors, transportation, housing, the economic engines of communities, along with health, wellness, lifelong learning, employment, meaningful work and wealth. We really focus on how we bring all of those partners in a community together in order to address the social determinants of health. And that's the space that we occupy. I mean, that's a pretty important space. And when you're talking about the difference between public health and actually the healthcare system, it's not a perfect overlap. It's like there's an interesting Venn diagram. But I'm really curious. I come from a background of like really focusing on climate change and what's going on with our the health of our world. So I'm curious about, you know, the natural well-being and how do you guys address all of that, especially considering I'm coming off of like I'm on the California West Coast. We've just had these crazy storms, you know, water drought is an issue and then flooding is an issue now. And, you know, like the things that we can't necessarily control but are very impactful for people and their well-being. So just I mean, just a little nugget, if you um, can speak to that at all, I'd be really curious as to what you'd have to say. Well, first of all, I hope you and your family are okay. Been thinking about friends and colleagues on the West Coast, you've been through a lot, not just recently, but for some time with fires and things before the floods. And I'm so glad you brought this up because it's not just a little nugget. It's actually really important. So. The work that we do is about not just addressing the urgent crisis of the moment, acknowledging that we live in a time for lots of reasons, not the least of which is climate change, where we are facing a never ending drumbeat of crises of the moment. We cannot predict the weather, as you described, we could not predict a global pandemic. And each of these crises reveal once again, all the ways in which our systems have failed to be designed, to be invested in, in ways that promote resilience, in ways that allow communities to take care of themselves and each other more quickly. We have failed to invest in the things that promote that resilience, that strength, that coming together, that will allow us to quicken that cycle of responding to a crisis. We cannot pretend that we're going to live in a time when we don't have these moments of need and emergency. But what we can do is invest in the kinds of things that aren't just Band-Aid solutions, but that really require coming together, having hard conversations about the legacies of injustice that have created haves and have-nots, have created different amounts of disparities along a host of different lines that do affect well-being. And think about how we invest differently, how we make choices, 
Those are acts of courage, acts of leadership at lots of different levels, but we're not always having those conversations. We want to respond to people who are struggling and suffering most, of course, but simply always choosing the immediate response, the immediate sort of transactional intervention doesn't change the outcome the next time we have a flood or a fire or they find themselves in need of healthcare if they aren't surrounded by the systems that promote them having adequate and humane housing, access to reliable transportation, access to a thriving natural world so that they can get out in nature and have clean air and have clean water, all of those things. And that's what the Vital Conditions Framework really pieces together. Those are all critically important to allowing our healthcare system to do what our healthcare system does well, which is not necessarily provide housing. When we've got this trend where hospitals are being asked to respond to social needs, and I'm glad someone in the community is doing that, but we really need to be able to have conversations about where the right investments come from in the, in our communities, who's best suited, what policies need to be changed to allow our government and our social services to truly help people get out of and stay out of that crisis mode. Well, so we needed to, how do we teach communities to be more resilient? And also being resilient, it requires strength and longevity like it's one thing to be resilient for an event but like the level of resiliency that is going to be required to face the future's challenges is like oh we got we have a lot of work to do so i'm curious if it is in your opinion like the government's job private job is it nonprofit is it all of them working together and like how do we how do we do more <laughs> to the level that is required. Right? How do we do that? Yeah. First of all, I think the notion of teaching communities is, I'm going to flip that on its head a little bit. Great. Your question about whose responsibility is it, it's all of our responsibility. And I think I want to be really clear that this is about institutions coming together outside of their organizational self-needs, self-determination, and really thinking about the community or the region or even the state that is within their locus of control. We talk about some a concept called stewardship. Sometimes people really understand that right away. Sometimes it's a little bit harder. But if you think about change makers, we intentionally don't talk about the challenge of leadership because that immediately puts people in a frame of mind about a position, a positional power structure. But stewards are really people who, who show up across all levels of society within organizations at all levels who recognize the need and importance and opportunity to have conversations where we're bridging differences, where we're thinking about long-term future horizons and the community and society we want to leave a decade, two decades from now versus, like I said, the urgent need of an election cycle or a media cycle. The notion of teaching communities is a really interesting one. And there is an element of skill building and capacity building, particularly related to stewardship, particularly to thinking about the vital conditions and how you might invest differently. But it is also really important. The center of that framework is something we call belonging and civic muscle. And it is at the center by design. It is a vital condition to have within a community for a whole host of reasons. I think there's been a lot of focus and emphasis more recently coming out of the pandemic on how important belonging is, not just to mental health, but to resilience, to people's ability to 
attain health and well-being. Civic muscle is also equally important. And that goes beyond things like voting, which is critically important, but it's civic engagement in day-to-day ways. Do you you feel connected to your community? Do you feel like you and people like you belong, have a voice, are valued and listened to? And so I'll come back to the notion of teaching communities. I think the biggest opportunity we have is to recognize that there are solutions in our communities. There are whole pockets of populations who have been left out of the power tables and the resource tables who are taking care of each other every day. And they are getting, have been for generations and continue to be very creative in how they take care of each other and take care of each other's needs. What we have to get better at is making space for them to have meaningful contributions, meaningful voices at the table for our leaders to, they need skill development too, to be able to listen, to hear hard truths and for communities to not be in a divisive or combative mode as they're doing that, but to really understand those legacies, how we came to where we are today. And then only then can we heal through that and start to imagine a different future with a solution set doesn't just repeat those same systemic structures that were created those injustices in the in the first place. I couldn't agree more. There's a, there's something that you know the idea of stewardship and also like campground rules. You know, clean mm-hmm. leave it mm-hmm. better than you found it kind of a thing. But after the pandemic or through the pandemic, something showed up for me that has just been kind of sitting on my shoulder for a while. It's like, how do you, how do I, and how do we be a good ancestor? Like, what is it that I'm going to do that generations from now? that it would benefit them and be thinking on this longer term, you know, timeline around like leaving the world better than we found it. And I I feel like that is kind of built into your organization by design. And I am really curious if there's a way to get companies, because that's not part of capitalism, right? To be thinking in that timeline of just like, that's the systemic change of like, how can we be doing better for, you know, seven generations down the road? You know, unfortunately, our economy doesn't really work like that. And it's like, that seems to be the divide. And do you have an answer? (laughs) (laughs) I won't pretend to have an answer. I would not be so bold. But first, I'll say you get it. You absolutely get it. And we sometimes use different language depending on who we're talking to. But this notion of kind of honoring our common humanity. Some people talk about really what we need right now is love. And in some circles, that gets an eye roll and then you don't really get the next conversation. But I do think that's at the heart (laughs) of what you're describing. And it absolutely is at the heart of our organization. And we have, we have several, you know, we have lots of projects. We get to live in this really privileged space of thought leadership and thought partnership with a lot of different organizations. So we work at a national scale in that space, really part of a broader social movement to thrive together. And we get to work at that local scale. And those two, the feedback loops between those are critically important. We're constantly learning and adjusting. But this notion of how do we make sure that we're good ancestors? How do we think about not just what I need today, what I need in a year, but how am I going to make sure that the next generation isn't having to repeat all the things that that we've just lived through and that they have a different set of circumstances and opportunities is really important. I've been accused of being an optimist (laughs) despite working on a lot of really hard and heart-wrenching things in my career. 
I do think we see bright spots in corporate America. I think we see bright spots in all of the sectors, even the healthcare sector, which I think struggles to figure out the difference between really delivering social needs interventions and fully embracing their equity aims and talking about changing the trajectory of social determinants. I understand the pressures that are on all of those actors, and that is part of why we have found that using the vital conditions as a framework, it doesn't require health as the price of entry. It really honors that there's a role for everyone. I think corporations more and more, and I think the younger generation, I have teenagers and young adults really gives me hope. They're demanding more, not just of their employers, but also of the goods and services that they spend their hard-earned dollar on. They're engaged in communities. I think they're volunteering and holding account, holding systems accountable in ways that we haven't always been able to observe in recent generations. But I do think that there is a role to play for corporations. There is a role to play well beyond corporate social responsibility. There are business models that need to be figured out. These are engineering problems to solve. These are bottom line problems to solve. And I think that is only in getting into conversation with people who come from a different perspective can shed a different light on the problem on your consumer, where however you want to define that stakeholder, actually sitting in deep conversation with them and hearing their experience and their aspirations and what they're willing to contribute is probably the starting point that I would offer. It's by no means the full solution, but I think it has to start with this human to human connection, honoring the dignity that each of us has, even though we see, and we saw this laid bare in the pandemic as well, we have entire sectors of our economy that truly we all walk by every day. They are shown no dignity, our care workers, our service workers, and yet we all rely on them. They rise to the challenge. They show up with heart in their professions every day. And we really need to stop and think as a society about how we value that, not just in their wages, but how we interact with them at the human level. I think if we could start spending more moments in that space together as individuals and as our organizations try to, to execute our missions, we would be light years ahead in a short amount of time. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And it's also really refreshing to hear that you're optimistic, like you have optimism given the heart-wrenching things that you have experienced along your career. And that's, I'm like, okay, is it 100% because you have inspiring kids around you? Or like, what is it that allows you to, to keep that? Because... I'm asking for myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I ask myself sometimes, I think, what choice do we have? And we have such, again, I'll say it's a luxury and a privilege in our work. We actively seek out what we refer to as the bright spots. Um, and that's a big part of what we're planning to invest even more time and effort in. The division that surround us, surrounds us is hard, has been hard for all of us. I genuinely believe that everybody is showing up doing their best every day. I try to, you know, there are moments when I catch myself forgetting, but I try to, I try to believe that and live that. But I also just think that what choice do we have? I think that I always want a second chance. I make mistakes. I make blunders. I do a lot of self-care. You know, I run, I meditate. I try to connect with people, find other leaders, especially other women, as I find myself in this new role. But I think that I just don't ever give up on the human spirit. And when we have the opportunity to find those change makers, those stewards operating and 
the amazing things that they do, the fact that we get to hear their story, and then we have an opportunity and a responsibility to elevate those stories. I think that the more we do that, all of us, it takes more than just one foundation doing that. The more that we all focus on those bright spots, I think the better we will all feel about the world, about ourselves, and recognize that, okay, there are there are good things happening out there. We just need to be intentional about finding them. I agree with that too. Finding them and amplifying them and giving people, if you find hope, share it with the people around you. Yeah. An interesting thing on hope, I'll just take a minute. I don't know if you've read the book recently in the last year that came out from Jane Goodall on hope. People think about hope as sort of this starry-eyed ambition, but she really breaks it down as being a construct that is about not just having hope, you know, a hopeful view of a future, but really also having some agency and steps that kind of lead you to the path toward that hopeful vision of the future. And I think that's really important because people can say, oh, I don't get to be hopeful. That doesn't feel like that's for me in my life. And I I really think it's important to think about hope, not just being a lofty ambition, but that it is a construct where you can break down tangible steps that you can take. I mean, I sometimes talk about our job is to leave the breadcrumbs to help people come from where they are and find their way into that bigger vision. I think that that is the thing that helps lift us up every day and get out of bed. I need to read that book, I think. <laughs> I'm curious. It's great. <laughs> it, that sounds that sounds great. Sounds like something I need to hear and kind of absorb too. I want to ask you kind of going back to your upbringing and also experience working with the CDC. So there's a couple of things that come to mind and one is a silly question and others are a little bit more serious. Which do you want? My silly or? Either way, both. Let's see if we have time for both. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go with silly. And that is like everybody in every movie that I've seen about zombie apocalypses, they go to the CDC first. Is that the accurate? Like, is that accurate? Is that what we should be doing, looking for in any kind of like major crisis? Is CDC the right answer? Should somebody be going to them to seek help? Yes, there's expertise there. Maybe not so much in zombies, but in whatever, you know, virus has launched the zombie apocalypse to spread, definitely. And they are some of the most brilliant minds and heartfelt people I've ever had to work with. There were challenging times and there are critiques that are fair and valid, but yes, you should definitely pay attention to what they're saying. I would not run to Atlanta. (laughs) They probably (laughs) won't be there either. And if they are, you know, you won't get in, but (laughs) pay attention to what they're recommending. Fair. Okay. So I guess also in terms of your experience at the CDC, what were some of the most memorable or like things that's really stuck with you? Because I imagine that the job is a big job and you got to see some incredible things. I can't even imagine. So is there anything you'd like to share or, or can share about that experience? So much. I mean, honestly, in 20 years, you know, some people go in and they have one thing that they focus on and that is their entire career. That was not my path. I am a community person. I'm a programmatic kind of policy communication person. I'm not the disease detective. I'm married to a disease detective, but that wasn't me. So I got to occupy this really fun and challenging space of being a translator, a translator between the scientists and the programmatic folks and a translator between CDC and our partners. And I got to have many different 
assignments in that time. I worked in almost all of the centers <laughs> in the Centers wow. for Disease Control. But some of my most rewarding memories, first of all, start with the people I got to work with. Those times when you really had that team pulling together, there was very low ego and it was really driven by the health impact we were all trying to have. I got to do that many times, but a couple that stand out are with the Communities Putting Prevention to Work program. It was the build as the down payment on health reform. In that era, it was the biggest investment ever in chronic disease prevention at the time. We lifted up tremendous resources for upstream interventions, policy systems, environmental interventions to address tobacco use, nutrition, physical activity, obesity. Got to work with amazing people across the country and a incredible team at CDC. I also really enjoyed my time. I was in the office of the director as deputy chief of staff, happened to be during the time when we also had the lab exposures, which was you know, not a good time for CDC, but really important to have people in there trying to solve problems and understand what happened. That was during Ebola. That was also during Zika. So really got to see the full breadth of the work that the agency does and the, the good they bring to the world. And again, just giving of people's lives over to the mission. And then as I was kind of in my last assignment, it was also what led me to the Ripple Foundation during COVID, got the call. And I, I often would get the call to say, we're trying to do something new. We haven't done this before. Can you come help us figure this out? And so I got that call during COVID and helped to establish one of the task forces, the only task force CDC led in the joint command structure. It was in that assignment that I was tasked with an objective that led to the long-term recovery and resilience plan that was put out last fall. And I was able to kind of have the vision, give birth to, and then shepherd for a year and a half working across all of the federal agencies. There are almost more than 40 agencies now represented in the recommendations of that plan. The reason it brought me to the Ripple Foundation is going back to one of your earlier questions, we knew early on we could not respond to the social and behavioral health crisis that we were witnessing in March of 20 through treatment alone. And we could not respond solely through government alone. We really needed civil society. They were actually acting in ways that were more nimble and solution oriented already. And so we worked in partnership with a variety of civil sector partners to lift up what we call the Thriving Together Springboard. It's the companion, the civil sector companion to the federal plan. It took me a lot longer <laughs> to get the federal plan through all of the things that it needed to go through. Makes sense. But that's how we found the Vital Conditions Framework. We used that to organize all of that. It is what allowed over 40 agencies, again, not just health and social service, but all of the federal agencies to see themselves. And it was a little bit of rabble rousing. Honestly, it was able to say, you know what? We can't go back. Everybody was saying we can't go back to what we were doing, but it was a chance to pull colleagues together and say, none of us want to be a part of this if we can't think differently and dream differently. And we were able to create space for all of those federal colleagues, career colleagues, not political appointees, to talk about if you could do anything to return the resources of the federal government back to be in service of our communities, what would you do? And so that's what resulted in those 78 recommendations, which is a lot. But when you think about the all of government, you know, that's actually a manageable, it's a manageable task to deploy that, that plan. And now, you know, I get to sit in a space where I continue to applaud from the side and 
also hold accountable and really call on my federal partners to fully implement that plan. What a career you've had. I'm just it's so been impressed. Fun. It's I'm so very cool. blessed. Yeah. <laughs> um, Becky, thank you for everything. If people want to follow you, work with you, uh, get in touch with the Ripple Foundation, where would you point them? LinkedIn, we have our website, ripplefoundation.org. We're also on LinkedIn, all of our social LinkedIn Instagram, Twitter are at Ripple Foundation. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. I mean it when I say this has been a pleasure just getting to know you. So thank you. Likewise, thank you again for putting all of these shows out into the world. I've really enjoyed them. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.